Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We uh, started a series a few weeks ago that we've entitled The Human Spirit. And uh, my intent uh, in this series is to give it a generic title so we can go wherever uh, I feel impressed of the Lord to go at any given time rather than teach um, as I normally do and, and build one service upon the next and, and so forth. I'm, I'm really not so much trying to do that with this series. And uh, I, I really feel impressed in my spirit to take my time with this. Um, I know I talk fast. And I've been told that, you know, people don't get half of what I say because I do go so fast. And I, honest to goodness, I don't know I'm going fast. I, I guess I just get excited about what I'm saying. And uh, anyway, I'm, uh, I'm actively working to slow down. And uh, see, like right now, I feel like I'm wasting so much time <laughs> talking at this pace. But uh, anyway, I, I really have in my heart to take my time and, and, uh, and just cover some ground. We may cover the same ground over and over again. We, we may cover, you know, cover one thing, go to something else, come back, cover it again. And uh, we'll just have to see how the Lord directs us. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he said, in the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. Now, notice that word is W-H-O-L-L-Y. One uh, translation says completely. Another translation says in, in your entirety. So he's talking about the completeness or the entirety of man. So I pray God, or I'm sorry, the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole, complete, entire spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if he's talking about the completeness or the entirety of man and he mentions three different parts of man, then man must be a three-part being. Wouldn't make sense for him to talk about the completeness or the entirety of man and then have some other uh, other other designation or, or category in there in some other verse of Scripture that's not listed here. If he's writing by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost knows how God made man, doesn't he? And if the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to say that the entirety of man is spirit, soul, and body, then man must be a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. Now notice he says that man is spirit, soul, and body. Paul, in his writings, why don't you turn with me over to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll, we'll start there and look at a couple of things, just remind you of a couple of things that Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Notice he says, um, verse 2, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit. So please notice he's talking about, and, and the, the phrase that he uses, the terminology that he uses, is he says speaking in tongues is speaking in the Spirit. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Another translation, I think it's Weymouth's translation, says he speaks divine secrets. Now notice what the Bible is saying. It's saying when you're speaking in other tongues, you're speaking in the spirit. Notice he skip, we'll skip down a little bit further in the chapter to uh, verse, well, where, where do we want to go? Verse 14, Paul said, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, now, verse 2, he says, if any man pray in an unknown tongue, now he's talking about himself personally. He said, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. I pray, my spirit prayeth. So who is he calling him? Who does he refer to when he uses the term I? For if I pray, what part of him is he talking about that's in operation? It's the spirit of man. Well, if that's true, then verse 2 is true for everybody else. When you pray in an unknown tongue, your spirit is praying. If any person is praying in an unknown tongue, their spirit is praying. And notice they're not talking to God, or not talking to man, excuse me. They're talking directly to God. God must want us to speak in the spirit. Now, the Bible says we, were, we know that uh, the makeup of God is very specifically defined. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said God is a spirit. He didn't say God is spirit. He gave God a definition. He gave God a boundary. God is a spirit. 
and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So now we've got two verses of Scripture. One's talking about speaking to God, speaking in the spirit, and the other talking about worshiping God by worshiping in spirit. God must be interested in spiritual activity. Which means natural activity or soulish activity, activity of the body or of the soul. You can't find anything where it talks about God seeking things of the body to worship him or seeking things of the body to communicate with him. You can't find anything in the Bible that talks about the the soul of man contacting God. But you can find a lot that talks about the spirit of man contacting God. Well, if that's true and if that's necessary then how important is it for us to learn to, to uh, learn about spiritual things and learn how to operate in the Spirit? Paul said again, we'll read it in verse 14 again, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. It should be the easiest thing for a spirit-filled individual to locate their spirit. Easiest thing in the world. Because if you're spirit-filled and you speak with tongues, you know that it's you talking, but it's not you that's giving yourself the utterance. In other words, it's you that's doing the speaking. It's your lips. It's your voice. It's your tongue that's that's forming the, the words or sounds. But it's not you that's giving yourself the things to say. Well, where is that coming from then? Well, the Bible says in Acts 2.4, they were all filled. Talking about the 120 on the day of Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gave them utterance. Now think about what that means. That means the Holy Spirit gives you utterance through your spirit. He doesn't give it to your mind. You don't know what you're going to say in tongues before you say it. It's not by your body. It's not according to feelings. You may or may not have feelings when you speak in other tongues. And the fact that you don't always have any special feelings when you do speak with tongues is clear evidence that God doesn't use your feelings to communicate with him. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding. Now, the understanding is part of the soul, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be accurate? We know that the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's an eternal part of man, too. But it's divided and differentiated between soul and spirit. It's distinct from the spirit of man. He's talking about something that's happening on the inside, but something... Uh, not happening in the mind or in the mental realm. My understanding is unfruitful. In other words, my spirit is in operation, but my head's not hooked up with my spirit. There's the distinction between soul and spirit right there. That's why I say it should be the easiest thing in the world for spirit-filled people to locate their spirits, to understand the the very basics, the foundations of spiritual things. So he said, for if I pray... In an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? In other words, he says, what am I to do then? My spirit's in operation, but I want my mind to work work toward God also. So how am I going to make that happen? What is it then? Here's his answer. I, the real him, spirit, I will pray with the spirit, and I, the real him, the spirit, will pray with the understanding also. I, the man on the inside, will sing with the spirit, And I, the man on the inside, will sing with the understanding also. So he's saying you can hook your mind up with your spirit, isn't he? Isn't that what Paul says is the answer? He's saying, therefore, that we can pray prayers that we can understand, prayers according to our understanding that are originated from or instigated by our spirit. Just like when we pray in unknown tongues or other tongues, We're praying from our spirit, but since that's not utterance from us, that's utterance from the Holy Ghost, our mind doesn't know what's going on. Now turn back with me to Luke chapter 16. We looked at this once before, but I want to look at it again. I love the story that Jesus told us because there are so many things for us to see. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and both of them lived here on the earth and both of them died. And it tells us what happened to them after they died physically. We'll start in verse 19. There was a certain rich man. Now, we've made this statement before, but I think it bears repetition. We know right away from the first thing Jesus says about this that this is not a parable. 
parables are things that stand for or represent other things. For example, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus said about verse, uh, what is it, verse 25, something like that, 26, somewhere around there. He said, the kingdom of God is like unto a man planting his seed into a ground, planting seed into the ground. The kingdom of God is like planting seed into the ground. What is that? That's a parable. It's one thing that's like or stands for or represents something else. You can't use the word certain in a parable. Because certain means this literally happened. This is the way that it was. This was a real guy. So Jesus is telling us something that really happened. He said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, real guy, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels. Who was carried by the angels? The beggar, the real man, the man on the inside, his spirit, his body was uh, was dead. His body was buried. It was disposed of in some way or another. This is talking about the real part of him, the eternal part of him, the part that lives on after the body is expired. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he, the rich man, he. Notice he hadn't changed. He's still the same guy. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Now, if you read that casually, it sounds like people that have it good here are going to hell. And the reason that that Abraham made it to Abraham's bosom is because he had a tough time here. But that doesn't have anything to do with it, folks. But there is a lesson for us to learn, and that is you can't tell somebody's eternal destination by their, their lifestyle here on the earth. Now, I've got a question for you. How does the rich man know Abraham? Abraham lived and died long before this guy ever came along. How does the rich man know Abraham? Is it possible that the rich man looks and sees Abraham and says, Oh, my goodness. All those things I heard about Abraham and the law of Moses and all those things that I paid no attention to on the earth, that's really true. Well, let's see. Let's keep reading. So he said, your lifestyle was different on the earth. Literally, what, what I believe that it's in, uh, indicating is you were concerned about earthly things and, and making things good for yourself and didn't concern yourself with spiritual things. And now things have changed. It's too late to do anything about it now. And beside all this, verse 26, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you from where I am in Abraham's bosom to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from where you are in hell. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, father, that thou would send him to my father's house, him meaning Lazarus. If he can't come here, send him back to the earth. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them. I don't want my five brothers to come here. Lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So what do we know right off the bat that was the, the very reason the the uh, the difference between the rich man and Lazarus that made Lazarus a candidate for Abraham's bosom, the place of comfort, and the rich man a candidate for hell. Moses and the prophets. Abraham's saying there's only one way to keep them from coming here, and that is for them to accept Moses and the prophets. In other words, the word of God. That's all they had. So why is Lazarus in Abraham's bosom? Is it because he was a beggar here on the earth and he had a tough time? No, it was because while he was a beggar here on the earth, he still cared about Moses and the prophets. Can you see that? So what is it saying? 
Abraham is saying there's only one way to make a choice. There's only one basis for a choice that determines whether you're going to be in a place of comfort or a place of torment, and that's the Word of God. Only one thing. Now, please notice that people on both sides have the same faculties in operation. Their eternal destination has nothing to do with what's, uh, what one person has that the other person doesn't have, except location. The rich man is concerned. He, number one, he's concerned about his brothers. That shows compassion, doesn't it? That shows memory. He recognizes Lazarus. So his cognitive powers are in operation. He recognizes Abraham, even though he's never seen Abraham before. So he remembers something that he heard about him to be able to recognize who he is. It's not like Abraham's walking around with a sign around his neck. Right? He has some kind of feeling or maybe feeling is not the right word to use. He has some sensation because he's tormented. Not only that, but he still has a tongue. We see that he's not only able to speak, but he says that he wants Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. So he has to have a tongue. He recognizes that Lazarus still has a finger because that's what he wants him to dip in water. It sounds like nothing's changed except the physical body. So what does that mean? That means if man is three parts, spirit, soul, and body, that means his spirit and his soul are in operation, intact, eternal, and in in operation, even after the physical body is laid in the grave. So man is a spirit, and he has a soul. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. We see that from the things that are in operation here. His mind is intact. His will is intact. He wills for Abraham to let Lazarus come to him first and then wills for Abraham to send Lazarus back to the earth. His emotions are in place. He has emotions not only concerning the torment that he's experiencing, but also this care for his brothers that are left on the earth. So his mind, his will, and his emotions are all in operation. And that's the the makeup or the definition of the soul of man. But there's still just one thing and one thing only that makes the difference between where they are. It has nothing to do with the chasm that's between them. It has nothing to do with the boundaries or the prisons that they're both in. Abraham, Abraham's bosom and Lazarus in his bosom and all the other Old Testament saints, they're just as much in a prison as as, uh, the rich man is. The only difference is their prison is a place of comfort. And hell is a place of torment. It's a prison of torment. But Abraham very clearly said, we can't come from you. We can't come from here to you. And nobody can come from you to us. And we don't go back to the earth either. That means there are boundaries on that location. Right? So there's only one thing. And Abraham identifies what it is. There's only one thing that makes the difference between the two locations. Hell, which is a place of torment, and Abraham's bosom, which is a place of comfort. And Abraham identifies that as the only word of God that they had at the point in time that Jesus is telling the story. That's Moses and the prophets. The word of God is what makes the difference. The word of God is what makes the difference. The word of God is what makes the difference. Now, remember, we've looked at some scriptures before. Maybe we ought to look at them again. Ezekiel chapter 36. I started to do it again. I started just to refer to something, and I want to take my time and look at it. Ezekiel chapter 36. This was the Old Testament prophecy concerning the work that the Messiah would do and how God would bring us into a new covenant his people, Israel first and the Gentiles afterwards. Verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the washing of the water by the word. 
Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. So the heart he's talking about has to be the spirit. He says a new heart I'll give you and a new spirit I'll give you. Now not every place that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, uh, the spirit or the soul, is it identified specifically like we broke it down earlier. For example, there are some places where the word spirit is translated breath. There's a, a place in the Old Testament that talks about the souls of animals. And some cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses being one, says that when man dies, he's dead like a dog. Now, by that, they mean that dogs have souls and man has a soul, and so we die in the same sense. But they misinterpret the Scriptures. Because the soul of animals has to do with their mind. They do have a mind. They can think. They have emotions. They certainly have wills. So they have a mind and a will and emotions present. And, but that's the source of life for them, not a spirit being. Because you remember God had created all the animals and these said, let's make man in our own image, which means nothing else God had created up to that point, which was everything else God created was not made in the image of God. By definition, if God is a spirit and we are made in his image, then man has to be a spirit being, which means animals are not. If animals were spirit beings, then how could man have dominion over the animals? They'd both be equal in God's sense, in that sense, in God's eyes. Animals would just be a lower class of human beings. No, the thing that makes man special and unique is that we are made in the image of God. We're the only thing that's made a spirit being here on the earth. This idea that you find in universities that man's just an animal, like all the other animals, they couldn't be more wrong. Because the source of life for man is different than the source of life of anything else. So man is the only thing that's created a spirit being, and man is the only thing that's made to be able to communicate with words. And the Bible says God created the earth in the beginning, way before he ever made man. He made the earth with words. So to make God, or for God to make man in his image and after his likeness, he created man to be able to communicate in the way that God communicates. And he's the only creative being here on the earth that does. No matter what they tell you about dolphins. So here where it's talking about a new heart I'll give you, it means a new spirit. It's talking about the innermost part of man. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, this is just King James English way of saying, I'll take the hardened heart, the heart that is hardened toward God, and give you a new spirit, which is a heart that is tender toward God. And remember, the first thing that the Bible says happens when we're born again, it says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts in Romans 5, 5. When the Holy Ghost comes into us because God is love, the one thing that comes into us, the first thing that comes into us is the love of God. First John 3, what is it, verse 19, somewhere around there? John says we know that we've passed from death to life. He's talking about eternal death to, to spiritual life, new, new life, eternal life. He says, we know we pass from spiritual death unto eternal life because we love the brethren. In other words, without that love being shed abroad in our hearts, there is no new birth. It's always the evidence, the first evidence. That's why the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 as being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. Those are nine different things, but really all eight of the, the last eight are characteristics of love in one way or another. So he says, a new heart I'll give you and a new uh, take away the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh, a new spirit, a spirit that's tender unto God. And then notice the next thing that it says happens. And uh, then I'll put my spirit within you. Notice God has to recreate your spirit in order to put his spirit in you.
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Can I ask you a question? What does John 13, 34 say that the new law of the New Testament is? Isn't it the law of love? Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you. Well, if it's a new commandment, then that means it takes the place of the others. It supersedes the old 10, the Old Testament 10 commandments. A new commandment I give unto you. But what is the new commandment, Jesus? That you love one another as I've loved you. He said, by this, by the love of God, demonstrated and lived out in your life, shall all men know you're my disciples. Notice it's not by keeping the law that we are known as the disciples of Jesus anymore. It's by the love of God. Why? Because there is no new birth without the love of God shed abroad in your heart. So here where it says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, the only statute he has in the New Testament is the law of love. Everything comes down in the New Testament to what would love do. Every situation you face, that your first question as a child of God should be, what would love do? What would love do? That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. One translation says a new being. Another translation says a new species of being. Now think about that. At the new birth, something happened that had never happened before. Now you know where the new birth started, don't you? Revelation chapter 1 says that Jesus was the first begotten or firstborn from the dead. Now he's not talking about physical death because Jesus was not the first one raised from physical death. Jesus raised Lazarus from physical death. There were Old Testament examples of people being raised from the dead. The guy that the dead guy that they threw into to Elisha's tomb, as soon as he touched his bodies, he revived and came back to life, to physical life. So Jesus couldn't be the first begotten or firstborn from physical death. So where it says Jesus was the first begotten or firstborn from death, it means from spiritual death, which means Jesus had to die spiritually. I know a lot of people don't like to admit that or like to, to consider that. But it's what the Bible says. And it makes perfect sense because unless Jesus died spiritually, then the price or the penalty of spiritual death, which which God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that would take place. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Something had to die to pay the price for spiritual death. And physical death wouldn't pay the price. Somebody had to die spiritually to pay the price for spiritual death. And that's what Jesus did when he was at three days in the earth. He was in the pit of hell. Now, how could Jesus, who was the son of God, go to hell? How could God go to hell? Well, the Bible says Jesus was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. It doesn't say that God laid sin on him. It says he became sin. They didn't do that because he sinned. He did that so that he could be your substitute, so that he could pay your price. But see, if Jesus didn't pay the price for spiritual death with his own spiritual death, then that price is still due you. So the best we can hope for is blessings here on the earth, and then when we die physically, we'll spend eternity in hell. That's not the way it works. No, we go straight to heaven. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, who made that available? It wasn't available in Luke chapter 16 between uh, when uh, Jesus was telling us the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, the Bible says when Jesus was raised from the dead, he led captivity captive. That means he took all those people in Abraham's bosom and took them to heaven with him. For the first time, heaven became populated with those for whom it was made. Don't you know that was a great day as far as God was concerned? Welcome home. So it says Jesus was the first begotten or first born from the dead. Well, then what does that mean? Well, if being born again or receiving eternal life, whichever term you want to use, if being born again fits this criteria, then that means the life of God had to come back upon Jesus and within Jesus where there was no life of God before. I believe with all my heart, that's why Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
I believe that was the point, the final point. It seems to me that it was progression. He begins in the Garden of Gethsemane to lay his life down. Remember, he said, nobody can take it from me, but I can lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. Well, that was true up until the point where he became sin and the life of God departed from him. And remember what happened when Jesus said that? Jesus cried out and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It says there was an earthquake and darkness covered the earth for, was it three hours? Why? Because at that moment in time, for those, for that period of time, those three days, man had no hope with God because his redeemer died spiritually. But oh, on the resurrection morning, the life of God came into him. The Bible says in Romans chapter five, or Romans chapter four, it's the last verse of the chapter. I think it's about verse 28, something like that. 28, 29, somewhere. It says, Jesus was raised again for our justification. King James is really poor on that verse because that word for means time. It literally says Jesus was raised from the dead when we were justified. The life of God came back upon him. He was raised from the dead. He broke the chains of spiritual death. Now he's born again, the first one that was ever born again. He goes straight to Abraham's bosom. And we know that Lazarus, we know that the rich man looked up to Abraham's bosom and saw what was going there. It stands to reason since Abraham was talking back to him that the people in Abraham's bosom were able to look back over into hell across the chasm and see what was going on. If that was the case, can you imagine what the people in Abraham's bosom are seeing when Jesus is born again from the dead, from spiritual death? They see the life of God come into him and whatever change, whatever punishment, whatever, uh, um, what's his name? Jonah writes about it in, uh, in Psalm 88, I believe it is. He writes about uh, the breakers that came upon him. Jonah speaks some things in Psalm 88 that didn't happen to him in the belly of the fish. Jesus said that the sign of the son of man was the sign of Jonah. So the things that Jonah wrote about in Psalm 88 were, were uh, uh, representative. It was prophetic about the things that were coming on Jesus. And it says wave after wave of the, of the punishment of God came upon him. But all of a sudden the life of God comes back upon him and Jesus throws back whatever was coming against him and whoever was coming against him, whatever work of the demons were in operation there. I don't know how that works. Don't pretend to. But Jesus threw it back, took the keys of hell and death, Went to Abraham's bosom and says, anybody want to go with me? And takes them toward heaven. Stops on the way there to pick up his body. Tells Mary, don't touch me. I haven't gone to the Father yet. Presents the, the captives, those that were from Abraham's bosom, presents them before the heavenly Father. Then comes back and says to the, to the uh, disciples, now you can touch me. I've already done my work to present myself before God. Now you can touch me. See what it's like. That's the new birth that the Bible says we have too. Don't think for a minute that Jesus had a different new birth than you have. You don't have something like Jesus. You have the same thing as Jesus. Jesus, who was made sin, became righteous when the life of God came back upon him and unto him. You who were spiritually dead, the righteousness of God has come back unto you. So God has to change your spirit, make you a new spirit to put his spirit in you. Now, with that in mind, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm about out of time. But turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to read some verses of scripture here. Maybe we'll lay a foundation for next time. Or maybe we'll come back to it later on in this series. <coughs> we're talking about spiritual things. We're Eventually, we're going to talk about spiritual development. We want to talk about growing in spirit and so forth, developing spiritual sensitivity and such. But I'm going to read some verses of Scripture. I'm just going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'm going to read pretty much the whole chapter, maybe the whole chapter. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save or except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power 
Now, notice he keeps speaking about no, he didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Now he talks about I didn't come with man's wisdom. He's going to make a distinction between the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the earth and heavenly wisdom. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power, <coughs> excuse me, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Now, who are those that are perfect? Don't let the word perfect throw you because perfect doesn't mean never miss it. Perfect means those that have been born again. Those that have been perfected in spirit. Doesn't mean there's not, they're not still growing. Doesn't mean there's not some spiritual development to be done. It means those that have been, that have passed from spiritual death into eternal life. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or saved. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. Moffat's translation says of this, uh, this phrase, princes of the world that come to naught, it says dethroned powers that rule this world. He's talking about demon spirits. So I want you to notice something. He says there's a wisdom of God. He says there's a wisdom of the earth. And he says there's a wisdom of the devil. Now in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, and Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, I think. Check me out on those. But it says there's two scriptures. It says the same thing twice. It says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, can I ask you a question? How could a path of death seem right to somebody? There's only one explanation, only one answer. And that is, if it's the way that everybody else is going, or if it's the thing that seems right because everybody else is doing it. It's not saying that the ways of death will seem right to the spirit of man. But it's real easy to fall in with what everybody else does. Now, if there are three wisdoms, the wisdom of God, wisdom of man, and the wisdom of the devil, we know where the wisdom of the devil and the wisdom of man is going to operate. It's going to operate in this natural realm. Where's the wisdom of God going to come from? The wisdom of God is the only one that will never end in death in any way. And by death, I mean curses rather than blessings. I don't just mean eternal death or spiritual death. The wisdom of God will always work. It will always bring you into success. It will always bring you into victory. But you've got a one out of three chance for finding that path to victory. We should understand where the wisdom of God comes from, shouldn't we? Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Didn't come in man's wisdom, but we do speak wisdom. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, what's a mystery? A mystery is something that's not clearly seen from the beginning. We go see mystery movies or we pick up mystery novels or, or that kind of stuff. And what does it do? It gives us the whole scenario except the little piece that ties it all together. So here we're saying we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. He's saying the wisdom of God can't be seen as the wisdom of God right up front. And it's only until you learn the mystery that you're able to identify what the wisdom of God really is. Folks, you need to understand something. The wisdom of God always leads you into victory. If the world knew that, they'd operate in God's wisdom, not because they love God, but to have the victory. To avoid the defeat, to avoid the curse. So that they could walk in blessings, so that they could walk in prosperity, so that they could walk in health. And the wisdom of God is that path to victory, to healing, to prosperity, and so forth, to peace. It's the path to everything that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. That's why it has to be in a mystery. Because if they were labeled, here's the wisdom of God, and this is what will lead you into death. People, after hurting long enough and bad enough, would finally say, well, forget about that Jesus stuff, but let's do the wisdom of God. We need more money or we need healing, so let's do the wisdom of God. It's kind of like tithing. If tithing was a formula, the banks would do it. 
If tithing was always, if the hundredfold return, as some people preach, was always you give $10 and God will give you a hundred times 10. What's that, a thousand? If that was a formula, who wouldn't be given to churches? It's not. It's not a formula. It's a truth, but it's a truth and a mystery. It's a truth that's not seen from the beginning. And who's, it, who's this wisdom that Paul says that we speak to? Who is it that we try to give the wisdom of God? Children of God, those that are perfect. Folks, whether you know it or not, as a child of God, you're in a special club. And there are all kinds of benefits to that special club you're a part of. But you access those special benefits through the wisdom of God. And just being in the special club doesn't mean you understand the mystery. Paul's going to tell these guys they don't understand the mystery. But there is a wisdom of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Please notice that God set apart ordained, determined, predestined you to enter into victory through his wisdom. It's there for you. But notice he said a hidden wisdom. Now that's an interesting term because Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, talked about the hidden man of the heart. And he's identified that even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. So he said the hidden man was the man of the heart, the spirit of man, in other words. Now Paul is saying that the wisdom of God is a hidden wisdom. I wonder if that means spiritual. I wonder if the Holy Ghost is being consistent with Paul like he was with Peter. I wonder if he's talking about hidden wisdom being spiritual wisdom. Let's keep reading. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Please notice that the Bible is telling you Satan would not have impressed upon the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, to deliver Jesus to be crucified if he had known about the new birth plan of redemption. What does that mean that you... What does that mean concerning you and the threat you pose to him? I think it's good that we're going slow. If the devil knew that you were the end result, that righteousness, the new creation created in righteousness and true holiness was the end result of Jesus dying on the cross... And dying spiritually and taking the punishment of mankind upon him. He never would have done it. Do you not realize the position that the Bible is telling us that we hold? As far as the devil is concerned. Now I don't know how you see yourself. But the Bible is telling you pretty plainly how the devil sees you. He sees you as a tremendous threat. A greater threat than Jesus on the earth by himself. Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, please notice verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. Now heart, he's talking about the spirit of man. Nobody has seen it. Nobody has heard it. Nobody has imagined it. The most spiritual person can't come up with what God, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. In other words, you can't see and hear the things of God without some kind of help, without this hidden wisdom. But God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For his spirit searches all things. Now, the word search means to investigate. The Spirit searches. Now, the Spirit, uh, there's no difference between the words that are capitalized, meaning Holy Spirit, and 
the human spirit where it uses a little less. So who's he talking about? But God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. Well, his spirit identifies that uh, the first word spirit is the Holy Spirit, right? But then notice it says for the spirit, just the spirit, not his spirit. It just says the spirit. So we're not sure yet who that's who that means, whether it's the Holy Spirit or whether it's the human spirit. But God has revealed unto them unto us by the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Now stop right there and think about what he's saying. He's saying you can't know you unless you know yourself spiritually. Nobody can know themselves if they don't know themselves spiritually. Now, folks, I would submit to you that there are, well, I'm inclined to say that there's not a university of higher learning on the face of the earth that teaches that man is the spirit. I don't know that to be true, but I would would certainly feel safe in saying 99 plus percent fail to recognize that man is a spirit being. The universities that are teaching psychology don't know that man is a spirit being. The universities that are teaching psychiatry don't know that man is a spirit being. So basically, psychology and psychiatry knows how to take you apart. But they have no idea what you're going to find once they get you taken apart. For what man knows the things of a man except his spirit? In other words, your spirit is the only thing that knows the real you. Your spirit is the only thing that is going to be able to identify who you are. Now, you are different than me. We're both spirit beings. We're both made in the image of God. But because God has a different work for you here on the earth than he has for me, he has different gifts for you than he has for me, nobody is going to know you and your gifts except you, the real you, your spirit. Now, with that in mind, may I remind you of Proverbs 20, verse 27? We're out of time. I'd make you turn there, but we're out of time. It says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, having said that, which spirit is he talking about that searches all things? Certainly the Holy Spirit searches all things. We can see, we can read a little bit further and say, for what thing, what man knoweth the things of a man save or except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. So we can see clearly that the spirit of God searches all the things of God. But who searches all the things of God in you? That's your spirit. You will never know yourself until you know yourself spiritually. How many Christians do you think know themselves spiritually as opposed to knowing themselves after the flesh? Paul even said this about other people. He said, therefore, we know no man after the flesh, but after the spirit. In other words, he's saying we've learned to make a spirit to spirit connection with people. You've got to know something about spiritual things if you're going to do that, don't you? Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. Why? Because the spirit of God searches out the things of God. And we see in verse 10 that he reveals them unto us. But where is he going to reveal them? Doesn't it stand to reason that he's going to reveal them where he lives? We've just seen that the new birth causes God to recreate our spirits and then place his spirit, the Holy Spirit, within us. So doesn't it make sense that God would reveal the the things of, that the spirit of God would reveal the things of God in the spirit in which he lives? That means he's not revealing them to your mind. That means he's not revealing them to your body. That means he's going to reveal them to your spirit. Folks, if we don't become conscious of spiritual things, how are we going to learn about the things of God? And again, I, I, I hate to, well, it is what it is. I started to say I hate to look at this from a negative standpoint, but it is what it is. 
What small percentage do you think in the body of Christ knows anything about spiritual things? Yet from these verses of Scripture, what could be more important than knowing spiritual things? How are you going to know God otherwise? How are you going to live in victory? Remember, it's a hidden wisdom. It's spiritual wisdom. If you don't know spiritual wisdom, or if you don't know the things of God, if you don't know spiritual things, you're not going to gain spiritual wisdom, which means you're not going to walk in victory, which means you're even going to be walking according to the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the devil. You think God's okay with either one of those two? I don't. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know, God wants you to know, the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak. He just said in verse 6, we speak wisdom. Now he says, these are the things, the things that are freely given to us of God are the things also which we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 14, but, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. Now, what is he saying? Who is this natural man? He talks about, we've looked at before at scriptures where Paul talks about the inner man versus the outer man. The outward man is perishing or decaying, getting older, literally. But the inward man is renewed day by day, he said. We just referred to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 where he talks about the hidden man of the heart. So he talks about the inward man. He talks about the the Bible talks about the hidden man of the heart. But who's the natural man? Who's the natural man? Well, the natural man could be one of two people. It could either be the unsaved man. Because now he's talking about the natural man versus the spiritual man. The contrast between natural and spiritual. Not inward and outward. He's talking about natural versus spiritual. So the natural man could certainly be the unsaved person. The natural man, the unsaved Receive not the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. He says he's not even able to know those things because they're spiritually understood. Which means if we don't understand things spiritually, we're never going to know the things of God. We can't unless we get apart from the natural man to become spiritual men and women. Well, who else is the natural man? falls into that category of the natural man. It could be people that are Christians that are still living according to the ways of the world, that are still operating according to the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the devil, who are living just like the rest of the world lives, irrespective of the fact that they've been born again, made new creatures in Christ Jesus. So he says the natural man, which could be saved or unsaved, Receives not the things of the Spirit of God. That means there are going to be a lot of Christians that never receive of the things of the Spirit of God, never receive of the victory of God that God has ordained from the beginning of the world, before the world was ever made, unto your glory, unto their glory. There are going to be people that never, ever, 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 ever receive of the things of God. Even though they're saved, even though they're born again, even though they've been raised to be seated with Christ in heavenly places, even though the devil considers them a threat because of their lack of spiritual discernment or understanding, they'll never walk in the things of God. I regret saying that I think that's the majority of the church world today. Paul goes on to to speak a little bit further. We'll close just a moment here. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, they're hidden. It's hidden wisdom that they're not willing to accept. But he that is spiritual judges, the word judge means to scrutinize or to investigate, he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, Paul didn't write in chapter and verses, so he's continuing the same thought in chapter 3. 
And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but unto carnal. Now, the word carnal means body ruled. What's he saying? He's saying you're the natural men. Sure, you're born again. You've even got gifts of the Spirit in operation. Chapter 1, verse 7 says they come behind in no good gift. The Holy Ghost is in their presence, but they're still natural men, which tells us you don't have to be spiritual for the Holy Ghost to manifest. Proof positive right here. See, a lot of times people see the gifts of the Spirit in operation. They say, oh, that person must be such a spiritual giant. Well, they may be a spiritual baby like these people were. It may just be the move of God and not have anything in the world to do with them. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto were you not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as mere men? In other words, he's saying the reason I know you're carnal, the reason I know you're body ruled, is because there are strifes and divisions and envyings among you. Which tells us spiritual people are going to overcome strife, envying, and division. Why? Because love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boil over with jealousy, 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love doesn't strive with its neighbor. Love doesn't create divisions. One of the things that the Bible says that God hates in the book of Proverbs, it doesn't say God doesn't like it. Let's say God frowns on it. It says one of the things that God hates is those that sow discord among the brethren. Discord is division. I'm amazed at some of the things people do in church. And I think, doesn't your Bible have that verse? Seriously? Well, that's what they're doing. Church is torn up. Because there are divisions, there are sects, rather than, than um, uh, sects, S-E-C-T-S. Sex was an issue too, but they get into that a little later. But there were little groups that were against other little groups. We're supposed to be a big family. Now, folks, i got to admit to you, I get along with some of my family a lot better than I get along with others of my family. But they're still family. And no matter what I think about them, don't you dare say a word. That's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? It's not the way it was with them. Now, notice what Paul said. He said, I fed you with milk. Why is it that they're not making the, the, the transition or growing from natural men or carnal men? In this case, it's one and the same. They're not going from being body ruled to being spiritually ruled. Why are they not making that that jump? Why are they not growing in that manner? Because they're rejecting the milk of the word. Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. What does he mean? Does he mean get taller? Does he mean get heavier? What does he mean grow thereby? He means grow spiritually. In other words, make the transition from being body ruled to spiritually ruled. So therefore, what does the hidden wisdom mean? Of God have to be. It has to be the word. It has to be the word. It's the only thing that made the difference. Between the rich man and Lazarus. As far as their location was concerned. It's the only thing that makes the difference. As far as the new birth is concerned. You're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word. Peter said. It's the only thing that makes the difference. In spiritual development. Folks. Here's a very simple truth. If you and I are not willing to change anything and everything about our life to fit what the Bible says, you'll never be a spiritual person. Ever. The word has to be number one. When Jesus was tempted of the devil to turn the stones into bread in Matthew 4, 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Think about what he's saying. He's saying man, the real man on the inside, just like food fits the body, fits and feeds the body, the word of God fits and feeds the spirit. And he said that spirit man can only live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I was talking to somebody the other day that was trying to justify some kind of wrongdoing in their lives. 
And they said, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. I said, no, actually, there's the truth and everything else. Now, you can call that different perspectives if you want to. And then they came up with, yeah, well, you think your way is the truth. I said, no, I've determined that the truth is my way. If I find something in my life that doesn't line up with the truth, I change whatever's in my life. It's not that whatever I pick, I just call that the truth. No, I find out what the truth is and then I adjust. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 4, 4. And that's what he used as a weapon against the enemy. Jesus is saying, not only have I lived, but I will always live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Folks, the word is everything when it comes to spiritual development. The word is everything when it comes to understanding the things of God. The word is everything when it comes to developing in spirit. It's everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is truth. It's not just containing the truth. It is the truth. Help us, Father, to be so aware of your word that nothing else in our lives matter above that. We thank you, Father, for the hidden wisdom of God that is the word of God. We thank you that that hidden wisdom leads us into victory in every situation. As we walk according to your truth, we walk according to your word. I thank you, Father, that you lead us into the paths of peace, the paths of righteousness, the paths of victory, the paths of healing, the paths of success and prosperity and blessing. In everything that we do, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.